Erev Tov, good evening. So good to see everybody here with us tonight. Bukhim Abayim. Thank you to those of you who have your cameras on. I appreciate it. For those who don't, I appreciate you. Uh, welcome, welcome to the Shi'ur. We are today continuing our exploration of two giants of Jewish thought. I mentioned last week we spoke about Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin. And this week we're going to be focusing in on someone completely uh, from, a, from a different... She doesn't belong to any category because she's a... Yechida, uh, she's an individual, a unique individual. I think that last week I was overachieving. The Rabbanit already warned me when I went out to teach the shiur. I said, I don't think you're going to be able to cover both of these people in one class. I said, no, watch me. You know, I, we, can, we can keep it short. There's no way in the world we can cover these people in one class. And she was right. I should have listened the first time. But today is the second half of last week's shiur. Even though it's a standalone shiur, so if you weren't here last week, you'll still understand most of what it is that we speak about today. And the topic of today's shiur is none other than Rabbanit, uh, Farcha, Frecha, Flora, Sasun. Um, and I know that I sent out a Wikipedia article last week for anyone to look at. Did anyone get a chance to read up a little bit about Rabbanit Sasun? Yeah, and I'm sure some of you already knew about her last week, so I'm sure there were things that were new, but uh, she's a well-known Jewish personality. Nonetheless, I think that even those of us who know her maybe still have a little bit of a vague understanding of who she was and I really intend today not just to discuss who she was or what she was, but rather what that means to us. What her life really changed in the Jewish community, the precedence that she set, and to focus in on that. Baruch Hashem, if I, if I taught this class last week, I would have had less material than I had today. So today I, I brought six extra books with me that I didn't have last week. And B'zalat Hashem, we'll get through all that information. Like I told you last uh, week, Rabbanitza Sun is the type of personality that you could speak about for six weeks in a row and not run out of information. In fact, just the correspondence between her and Chief Rabbi Yitzchak Nisim, which I printed out last night, is well over 120 pages. I think I attached it to the, to the Google Classroom yesterday. Over 120 pages of solid Torah information. Who knows, maybe we'll have a mini-series in the teachings of Rabbanitza Sun. But for right now, one step at a time. <clears throat> Can I ask out of curiosity if any of the Jews here with us today, and I know in the United Kingdom there's a high concentration, anyone here from an Iraqi background at all? Yes. Yes? On which side? My grandfather was born in Baghdad. Really? What was the last name in Baghdad? Mashallah. Oh, okay, look at that. So we're talking about... So Benji, I'm going to ask you permission to teach the shiur tonight. Uh, this is uh, the Jews of Baghdad are really going to be the topic of tonight's conversation because it's not a surprise to me that when you begin to look into a female Talmidot Chachamot, you should know the title of Torah Scholars for Women is in, in much controversy. Not, I'm not talking about orthodox controversy. I'm talking about what you call a female Torah scholar. So a male Torah scholar, you call them normally uh, Talmidei Chachamim in the plural. The students of Chachamim, the students of scholars. The question is, what do you call one, one student of a scholar? So in the, all the manuscripts of the Rambam, it seems to be written, Talmid Chachamim, a student of multiple Chachamim. Even though today in spoken Hebrew, we normally say Talmid Chacham, which would translate less of a, a student of wise people, rather a wise student. That's how it would be. And therefore people will say, Talmidah uh, Chachama. The plural would be a, a student of, a wise student. But really, most likely, the grammatically correct way to say plural of, of uh, it would be, Talmidat Chachamim. 
a student of the Chachamim. That would be the correct way to say this, though. Like I told you, this is a, a matter of debate among all kinds of people. Nonetheless, she was a Talmidah Chachamim. A Talmidah Chachamim. Whenever you begin to explore female Torah scholarship, it shouldn't surprise you, especially in the last 200 years, that this unique type of Torah scholar comes from a place like Baghdad. Baghdad is, is a unique... Um, it's a unique Jewish community with its own style and its own approach. And like other Jewish communities, by the way, Syria, for example, had its own style of uh, female Torah scholars. I, in fact, met a Tamikacham in Yerushalayim, who he had been taught his parashat bar mitzvah, so his uh, Torah reading for his bar mitzvah from his grandmother. The job in the family was the grandmother taught all the grandsons how to read the Torah with the tune of Amika. That's how she was taught in Syria, and that's how she was going to teach her grandchildren also later in life. I mean, this was a thing, a thing that, that the female Torah scholars existed. It's not a surprise, it's not a modern innovation. Yes, there are things that happened in the last few centuries that have definitely turned the tides of scholarship in general, not just in Torah, the scholarship in general to be much more open and accessible to women than previously allowed for foreign history and anyone who's familiar with the women's suffrage movements and everything that's happened in the last hundreds of years, you're familiar with how this has transitioned over time. But even in the Jewish community, there are unique pockets of Talmidot Chachamot and you find them in this time period to be in very high concentration, specifically in Iraq and more specifically in the city of Baghdad. And God willing, I will explore that with you today. So let's draw some background information a little background about the way that people were taught Torah in Baghdad, and then we will, we will continue from there into the unique life of Rabbanit Flores Asun. There's a fascinating article written by a colleague of mine, who I can't even share with you his name because he's still not sure that he wishes to publish this, this information to the public. But I have a manuscript of one of his uh, many essays that he's written on the topic. And this specific essay is titled Female Torah Scholars Among the Jews of Baghdad and Their Influence on the Future. And essentially it's an exploration of female Talmidei Chachamim or Talmidot Chachamot who were studying Torah and learning Torah and teaching Torah to different degrees in different places, but specifically in this article in the Jews of Iraq. And he sets a very unique stage for us, and I wanted to share with you that information. And normally I would quote to anyone who I'm quoting, but he's, I've been asked explicitly not to quote him, and because of that, I unfortunately cannot, I have to listen, you know, someone shares the information, you have, to, you have to be nice. When I was in Yeshiva in Baltimore, this conversation surrounding can women study Torah or not, took up a lot of time in people's minds, especially since when I was in yeshiva, there were all kinds of movements in the Jewish community figuring out whether a woman should go to yeshiva, whether we should ordain ladies to be rabbis, and so on and so forth. In my heart of hearts, this conversation is such a, such a ridiculous conversation to have. The question of, should women be able to study Torah is, is um, I'm, I'm embarrassed that we even have this conversation in the first place. But I'll, I'll share with you some personal history before I share with you anything else. My grandmother, Shalom, so my father's mother, was born in Yemen. She was born uh, Shadra, but later when she came to Israel, you know, they have to give you a Hebrew name, they called her Sarah, so my Sarah grew up in Yemen. 
to the home of a Mori Kohen. My, my, my grandmother's father was a rabbi of school children in Yemen. And it's talking about that one room schoolhouse, like the olden days where they would teach Torah. By the time you turned three or four, you knew the weekly parasha by heart. And as was the law in Yemen, so not talking Jewish community politics, but the law in Yemen was that women were not allowed to read and write. It was uh, like other countries in the Middle East that have this sickness. Uh, women were not allowed to be taught to read and write. If you're familiar with uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, there have been terror attacks against girls' schools and things that have really, it's, it's something that's still burning in certain areas of the world. Well, this was Yemen, and it doesn't make a difference what the rabbi felt or didn't feel, but according to the law and for the sake of his life, he was not allowed to teach woman Torah. That was the rule. And my grandmother, from a very young age, she wanted to know Torah like her brothers knew Torah, like her family knew Torah, like the uncles knew Torah, like everybody else knew Torah. And you think, well, what's the big deal about a woman learning Torah? But it was illegal. The bottom line was that my grandmother would hide herself in the closet in my great-grandfather's school. So she would hide in the closet and she would listen to the boys. And if you're familiar with Yemenite tradition, the boys are taught from a very young age to know Tanakh by heart. And by the time my grandmother got married at the age of 15 and then moved to Israel a few years later as a, as a young, so she was to become a mother when she arrived in Israel, she did not know how to read or write, not Hebrew, not Arabic, but she knew the entire Tanakh by heart. So the entire Tanakh, from cover to cover, she knew by heart. The way that you would chant it in a Yemenite Betakrezit. Uh, and that's how she was. She, for her, she, Tanakh was her book. I remember as a child coming to my grandmother's house, and my grandfather was the rabbi of a Yemenite synagogue in, in the, outside of Haifa. And part of what he would do every evening was sit down at the table, and anybody who was home would read with him, they would read the Chumash, the weekly Torah portion, twice, and then one time in Aramaic, so twice in Hebrew, and once in Aramaic. And we, the visiting school children from America, uh, let's be honest, our Hebrew was good, but our Chumash chanting skills maybe not as polished as our Yemenite cousins in Israel. And we would sit there at the table, and I remember my grandmother cooking in the kitchen, so she would be cooking in another room. And when one of us would mess up in the pronunciation of one vowel, in one letter, in the pasuk, she would correct us from the kitchen. No books, no other. She would correct us from there and do it again. You did it wrong. Do it again. And for anybody who gets offended easily, you get offended because the whole point is precision. They want to make sure that everybody knows how to read precisely. It doesn't help that you make your way through Hebrew. It makes a difference that you pronounce it properly. Once my grandmother's oldest child, youngest child had left the house, uh, so she had a... I think we're at nine children. Uh, she, they, they left the home. My grandmother decided to sign up for Ulpan classes. She was in Israel, a modern state of Israel. And she decided to go to Ulpan. So she spoke Hebrew. She knew Tanakh by heart, but she didn't know how to read or write Hebrew. And so she went and she took classes like any other, anybody else who would come to Israel and learn how to read or write Hebrew. And she was so fond of these letters, these words that she knew her whole life, but now she was finally able to you know, put a face to the name, to, to put those, those words into use. And she wrote my father, who's her eldest son, she wrote him a letter here to San Diego, California, in which she cursed Yemen. Cursed is Yemen who didn't teach her daughters how to read and write. And this for her was a, was a big moment. It was, it was a, a time in which she finally had accomplished this feat that she always wanted, to be able to read and write Hebrew. She taught herself Tanakh at a young age, but to be able, and maybe I think she was, I'm not exaggerating if I would tell you in her 50s, but so the gap between 15 to 50 of knowing Tanakh and never being able to read the book on your own. And this is a, 
a world that may seem like it was yesterday. And who was raised like that anymore? But the truth is that large segments of the Jewish community still very much believe that the best way to teach Torah to women is just not to teach them Torah. Or at the very least, the type of Torah that we teach to women is somehow dumbed down beyond any, any fair or reasonable way. I don't want to get into the politics today of, of Torah scholarship for women in the modern understanding. I don't want to deal with ordination for women or not and everything that goes into today's Jewish political scene. For me, the Torah is such a central part of Jewish life that it would be inconceivable for me that someone should be expected to live a life of Torah mitzvot without ever fully understanding Torah mitzvot. And at the very essence of who we are and what Shiviti is all about, the dream has always been to give access to Torah's information to people, especially in instances in which it's held away from them, held back from them. So people know us in the world as the people who talk about kosher without kosher symbols or something like that. The truth is that in my entire life, I never thought that I would be running a forum on the internet that tells people that they can have cucumbers from the grocery store without a kosher symbol on it. In my, in my, in my list of dreams in the world, lack of kosher symbols on food products was just never the thing. That was never the, that. wow, I made it. Finally in the world, Baruch Hashem, we have a forum in which people can eat potato chips without a kosher symbol. This was never the dream. But the dream was, in a world in which Jews are having the Shulchan Aruch hidden from them, codes of Jewish law that, that were written for the people, that rabbinic establishments are deliberately holding back information from people that would free them. There was once a comic somebody sent me, maybe Calvin and Hobbes could be, it said nobody's going to teach you, nobody's going to educate you in something that will free you from them. And unfortunately that's the world that we're in right now. And in this sense, the Torah is the Torah tziva lanu Moshe murasha kilat Yaakov. The Torah is an inheritance. We have a monopoly in the Torah. Nobody else has a monopoly in the Torah. Meaning, this Torah is ours. It's our inheritance. You cannot take away my inheritance from me. And over the years, we found that there were upstanding Torah scholars who were ladies who stood up and claimed this inheritance for them as well. And instead of focusing on what's allowed or not allowed, it would be much rather to just focus on the people who didn't ask the question and did what needed to be done to make sure that this Torah remained public property, remained the domain of all Jewish people regardless of their gender. And for that, I want to walk in with you to the world of Baghdad. I'll tell you maybe one more story that's personal to me as well. I wrote an article once, I maybe Parashat Chaye Sarah. A few years back, I had some visitors in my home from the Satmar Jewish community in New York. And uh, the man took me aside and warned me that I'm, I'm, I should, I'm destined for a life of suffering because he's horrified to know that my wife is so educated and that it's a very dangerous thing. It's a very dangerous thing to be married to a woman who's educated. Uh, so the things he was telling me, almost like they came out of a storybook. I thought he was making fun of me at the beginning. And uh, it led me to a conversation, halakha, among the poskim, when a man passes away in the... Chachamim talk about how we eulogize him, how we speak about his good deeds, about his Torah, about his ma'asim tovim. And our Chachamim say, what about a woman who dies? What do we speak about? Says, well, she has no Torah. So we speak about her brothers, we speak about her husband, we speak about her children, we speak about anything except for her. And that article I titled, Don't You Want to Be Eulogized? Imagine a world in which Chachamim could say, when a, a lady passes away, when a, when a person passes away, regardless if she's a man or a woman, 
to be able to eulogize them for the Torah that they've accomplished, for the Judaism that they have under their own belt. Imagine such a world. And we merit to live already in a world that's open to that idea. And when we started our Shiviti Kolel here, in the evenings we have uh, classes here throughout the week, at the beginning I started with a group of men uh, that were in the Kila. Those were the only people who signed up. So it was called the, the Men's Kolel, the Shiviti Men's Kolel. And we were signed for a long time already now. And there was one lady who always wanted to join this kolel. She's one of our closest students, very, a big person in our community. She always wanted to join. And for whatever reasons, it was, you know, it's a men's kolel. We have classes for ladies. This is a long time ago, a long time ago. At a certain point, she put me on the spot and said, why does this bother you so Go ask Haraperetz what he thinks. Now, I know Haraperetz. Haraperetz is fanatic when it comes to the separating of genders in general. He doesn't appreciate this Western lifestyle of us all sitting around in a room and talking. And tr- it's, not, it's not the world in which Haraperetz finds himself comfortable. So I knew what Haraperetz was going to say. But of course, the men's college should be for men and the women's college should be for women. And Shalom and Israel. So I call up Haraperetz. Haraperetz, there's a lady. She's trying to join our kolel. Kolos at night, these are all married men. They leave their, I'm trying to make it sound as bad as possible. They leave their wives at home to come to a place, a sunny Torah, and now there's this woman who wants to come to the class, and who knows, maybe the wives won't let the husbands study Torah. I was just trying to, whatever I could do to make it sound bad. And there's silence on the other end. And Rabbi says, I don't understand what's wrong with you. I said, What's wrong with me? He said, Somebody wants to come and study Torah. Who are you to say no to somebody who wants to come and study Torah? But it's called the men's kolel. He said, so change the name. Call it the night kolel. And ever since then, it's called the Shiviti night kolel. We're going now on seven years. The Shiviti night kolel. And ever since that moment in, uh, early on in, in our career, it has been that way that every class that we have in the community is open to everybody. And that model that we were unfortunately raised with has been abandoned. And Baruch Hashem, uh, a proper Torah model has been adopted. And so this topic carries a lot of, uh, person, it's a personal topic for me this topic of making the Torah accessible to everyone and to see the heroes of such a world. Let's get into that together. In Baghdad, in the late 1800s, you have a school system that's put into play. You also find it in Morocco and some other countries. Anyone familiar with which school system came to Baghdad at the end of the 1800s? Very good, Aliyat, that's right. And it has a fancy French name that I can't pronounce, but I think some of you here speak French, so you'd be able to pronounce it better than me. But the Aliyat school comes to Baghdad, especially it comes to Morocco. In different communities, it's treated differently. So whereas in Baghdad, we find the Benish Chai speaking at the opening, at the opening ceremony of the Aliyat school. Perhaps it didn't stay that way forever, but at least in the beginning it was. Uh, in Morocco, you find the Rabbanim fighting tooth and nail against the Aliyat school. Uh, and we start to find, obviously, women being educated in Jewish schools when that happens because it's a modern Jewish movement that is bringing a modern style of education to uh, Sephardic countries. But I'm talking to you a hundred years before the Aliyahs came. So in the early 1800s, we already find a number of Talmidot Chachamot, of Torah scholars, that are blossoming in Baghdad in particular. And the reason for that is quite simple. In Baghdad, you have a Jewish community, like most, which is made up of two classes. There's the lower class, and there's the middle and upper class that are, make up a unique class. And in the regular schools in Baghdad, they were public Jewish schools. So they were the normal Bet Midrash of the community, in which you could send your children until about the age of 8 or 9 or 10. You could send them there for free. 
And this yeshiva, these batei midrash, were open only to boys. So girls were not, uh, there were no schools for girls. But these public schools were open to boys. And boys would go and they would study how to read Hebrew. They would study the vowels. They would study chumash, perhaps a little bit of other things. It was a basic Jewish education. So your average Jew would be able to go to the Beit Knesset and pray and, and be involved in the community. But this was open exclusively to boys and not to girls. Alongside this system was a private school system. And this private school system was for the middle and upper class Jews. It cost money, which is the reason why it was, I mean, anyone could join. It wasn't, it wasn't a social class that got you in, it was an economic class that got you in. Could you afford tuition or not? And this school was open till about the age of nine or 10. It was a co-ed school. So it was a Benimilash that was for boys and girls. They were young children. And this school taught Hebrew, it taught Tanakh, it taught some basic elements of uh, other, you know, maybe other things like holidays and whatever else. And the daily in Yaakov, so a little bit of Tanakh, a little bit of Mishnah, a little bit of Talmud, a little bit of, of uh, maybe even some Zohar, some other things, whatever, whatever else was on the agenda at the school. And so this shows you that already until the age of 9 or 10, you had children, boys and girls, who were being taught a basic Jewish education of Tanakh, as well as oral Torah. So it may not be an um, absolute, uh, deep, intense study of the Talmud, but this Torah was accessible to everybody. What happens at the age of 9 or 10, those from wealthier families would have tutors that were hired for them. And those tutors would continue to teach uh, Torah to the children at the home. So you'd get a rabbi, for example, in Syria. In Syria, you have a very unique model of school systems that existed there. The wealthier families would have you know, a property. They would have their home they lived in. And behind their home, they would have a smaller home in which they would have a Talmud Chacham and his family who would live there with them. So two families that live together in the same property. One of them was a wealthy person, another one was a Torah scholar. And the Torah scholar was fully supported by the wealthy person who owned the property. And the exchange for that was that the Torah scholar, his wife and his children, were all responsible for setting a certain religious feel in the home, to teach Torah to the children, to teach Kashrut to the people in the home, to, to make sure that the family was educated properly in the way of Torah. And this is really what took the place of tutors. And this is also in Ashkenaz, a similar uh, strategy, which was to hire tutors after a certain age to make sure that the children who could afford it were given a certain education above that which was the average child received in the street. And the wealthier the family, the families that were more interested in education, they obviously invested more in this than other families did. You have a traveler. His name is Rabbi Yehoshua Yelin. He's the father of a famous professor, Professor David Yellen. You may have heard of him because there's a street in Jerusalem named after him. So for those of you who may have spent some time in Israel, you may have heard of Rehov David Yellen. He visited India in 1981. Can someone tell me the connection between India and Iraq? Very good. So Iraqi Jews had come over and there were, there are Indian Jewish communities in their own right, but the Iraqi Jewish community had roots in other countries. You're talking about Singapore, you're talking about, uh, especially you're talking here about uh, India. And so you have a high concentration of Iraqi Jews that are living in India. And so in 19, uh, sorry, 1891, you have Rabbi Yoshua Yelin find himself in the Baghdadi community in India and he writes the following words. Bevera Knesset, Hitvadati, 
לראות איש תלמיד חכם ומשכיל ובעל לב טוב מאוד. I bumped into the synagogue to a man, a very wise man, who had a very good heart. הוא היה מלמד לבניו ובנותיו של העשיר חזקאל שואה. And he was the teacher of the famous wealthy man Yechezkel Shua. Yechezkel Shua is none other than the father of Rabbanit Flores Azul. So here you find an Ashkenazi traveler who finds himself in India, in the Iraqi Jewish community, and he says, I meet a rabbi, a Talmid Chacham, with a good heart, who's the personal teacher of Yechezkel Shua's family. who taught his sons, banav uvnotav, his sons and his daughters. Meaning he ensured that his children, not just his boys would receive an education, but his daughters would receive a Torah education too. Min hagam behodu, the custom in the Jewish community in India, lelamed gamet benotahem Torah, to also teach their daughters Torah. I mean, this is a surprise to him. The, the daughters are also studying. Tanakh, they would study the Tanakh, Mishnayot, ve'en Yaakov. And ve'en Yaakov, the agadot of the Talmud. So a basic understanding of the Talmud. This leads to Mas'uda Rachel, who is the daughter, interestingly enough, of Professor Yoshua Yelin. She asserts that it was very popular in the Jewish community of Iraq to find thousands of Torah scholars that were women. And the author of this article makes it very clear that it's an exaggeration. Thousands not, but a higher concentration, precisely because there were private schools that were open to boys and girls. And there were clearly a, was a culture of parents who hired tutors for their sons and their daughters to teach them Torah. It's at this point in time that we must meet none other than Rabbanit Flora Farcha Sassoon. By the way, her name, unfortunately, Frecha Farcha, that name has become a derogatory word in Hebrew, modern Hebrew, unfortunately. It's not a, I'm not happy about it. But it's for that reason that sometimes you'll hear me prefer to use the word Flora over something else. For the modern Israeli who's been brainwashed by whatever is, is taught in that general culture, it's unfortunately a very negative word. And it's sad for me that that's the case. Why should it be the case that famous, uh, famous woman in our heritage had this name, but it was turned into a negative name? It is what it is, and therefore I just avoid it for that, that social uh, reason entirely. If you take out your handout that I sent to you by PDF of Pirkei uh, Shira, Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin's book that we were doing last week. So it should be attached to the Zoom invitation of whatever Google Classroom you got this invitation in. And Harav Shem Tov Gagin, who we studied about last week, dedicates this entire book Sorry about that. Dedicates this entire book to Marat Farcha Sassoon. Let's see it together. So, I can't, what page is a PDF? Let me guess. It'll be 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. Probably page 8 of the PDF. It should look like this if I can show it to you. Anyone need help finding the PDF? Okay. Short biography of the life of the Rabbanit. Rabbat Ma'alot, who is worthy of many praises. Marat Farcha Sassoon. 
Minashim Bo'el Tavarach, she should be praised from all the women who are in the tent. This is a famous uh, rabbinic praise for women, that, that title is like Shlita. Eshet Chayel Mimta, a woman of valor who can find. This is from Mishlei Lamed Aleph. And it says, Kore Naim, dear reader. Hen Ba'akdamat HaSefer, already in the introduction to my book. Kvar Hodati, I already told you. Ki Karati Shem HaSefer Pirkei Shira. I've named this book Pirkei Shira, the chapters of song. Lirmozbo, to allude in the name, Shem HaRabanit, the name of the Rabanit, Farcha Sasun. So how does that connect to each other? Farcha Sasun is a pei and a sin. Pirkei Shira is a pei and a uh, sin also, and because of that, uh, they correlated. I mean, I've named my book, I've dedicated my book to her. Now at this point in time, she's alive. She has not passed away. This is a dedication to her in her lifetime. By none other than the chief Sephardic rabbi. Yan because I saw Because this woman is worthy of all the praises in the world. And I wish to ensure that her name will be remembered, will be engraved into Judaism, the Jewish history forever. And all of the Sephardim and all of the Ashkenazim take pride in her. And they praise her and they adore her. She's a, a, woman, a mother of the Jewish people. Said, and later on in my book, I've dedicated a poem to her in which I discuss details about her, her actions. And I discussed the greatness of her wisdom and her piety. But in this opening chapter, I just wish to share with you a little bit of her biography. And I hope that whoever reads this book will find it interesting to them and they'll take interest in this personality who is Rabbanit Sassur. Rabbi Sassun was born in the month of Cheshvan in the year 1856. In the city which then was called Bombay. To her father, the righteous man, who loved Torah and those who study Torah. So she was born, her maiden name, and she was born to the Gabai family. And to her righteous mother, Aziza, Bat Lahasar Abdullah ben David Sassun. So she's a, on her mother's side, the daughter of Aziza, the, da, the daughter of Abdullah ben David Sassun. Her, her, her family traces itself back to the famous Somech family. And anyone who's familiar with uh, Baghdad and the rabbis of Baghdad and the families of Baghdad, the Somech family is a, a, a tremendous, the last name. The Kabbalah be Adam and they have a tradition in their hands, that they go all the way back. They can trace their lineage back to Rabbeinu Nisim, who was the Rosh Hashiva of Babel, of Babylon. Mechaber Havidui Hagadol on page 12, so on the next side. The author of the long Vidui, which is found in the Sephardic Machzor during Shachrit, and also in the Ashkenazi Sidor for Yom Kippur Katan. 
Now he has an interesting footnote here, but is anyone familiar with the vidui of Rabbeinu Nisim? So, in many communities, especially the Sephardic community, I don't recall the Ashkenazim, in my experience, uh, saying it on the high holidays. Ashkenazim do have it in the Yom Kippur Katan service. What is Yom Kippur Katan? Very good. So Erev Rosh Chodesh, many, many people have accustomed to fast, and that fast is called uh, Yom Kippur Katan. So in Ashkenazi Sidur for Yom Kippur Katan, you'll find this prayer as well. This vidui is a very long vidui. It's called vidui Hagado. It's pages and pages and pages and pages. It takes a long time to say it. It's really depressing too. So I won't lie. If you go through the vidui, it's, it's really harsh. It's pretty much calls us out on all kinds of averot. Those that which we've committed... And those which we never even thought of committing until we read them in the vidui of Rabbeinu Nisim Hagadol. It's a, it's, a, it's a very severe vidui. There are many communities who skip it entirely. Our community says it in some part of the tefillah where other people don't say it in that part of the tefillah. Nonetheless, this vidui is under much conversation. If Rabbeinu Nisim really wrote it, which Rabbeinu Nisim wrote it? And he has a long footnote here because remember, Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin is the one who collects customs. Ashkenazi, Sephardic, and he discusses the history of various customs. And his attitude is this may not actually be the same Rabbeinu Nisim who wrote the vidui, or that maybe the vidui was not written by Rabbeinu Nisim. Nonetheless, it's not the point of today's conversation. If you're interested in the footnote, that you can find it there. And he elaborates on this in his book, Keter Shem Tov. Harabanit Sassun Odena Yalna. Rabbanit Sassun was still a child. Her parents already saw that she was extremely talented. And she was gifted by Hashem with a very clear and straight mind. And her parents saw how much she desired on a real sincere level to know both the written Torah and the oral Torah. And so they decided to hire specifically for her a teacher who was extremely pious and a brilliant scholar to teach her Torah in the way that they were able to afford. The name of the Chacham was none other than Rabbi Yitzchak, the son of Shimon Agassi. This is probably the same rabbi that Rabbi Yehoshua Yellen met when he was in Bombay, praying in the synagogue. Uh, the footnote here, so if you go down to the bottom of the page, there's two stars. Rabbi Agassi was famous in Bombay for being a righteous and pious man. And he passed away in the year 1917. And he was buried in Harazetim. He writes, He writes, his soul be bound up in the bonds of, of life. This personality, Rabbi Yitzchak Agassi, was a famous Tamich Chacham. So she didn't just get a tutor, some random yeshiva student or some random person. Her parents hired for her a Tamich Chacham of the highest caliber. Somebody who could teach her not just Torah. But notice how much we're stressing here. She wasn't just a smart person. She wasn't a smart child. She was a righteous person. That she was a person who, who it fit for her to have a mentor that she could emulate. Umimenu shava, back on the top, umimenu shava kolimudeha ad yomo ha'achron on page thirteen, and she nurtured all of her Torah from him. She received it all from him until his very last day. Uvehem shechazman, and as time went on, asta chayil b'limudeha, she was very successful in her Torah studies. Ad kolasher nichnas viyotzed bevet Torah tzadikim zal, to the point where every visitor 
to her righteous parents' home, how she was studying Torah so diligently, in self-sacrifice. Said, I remember still when the rabbis would travel back and forth, the tzedakah collectors would travel back and forth to India, back to Eretz Israel. Everybody that could speak about her would speak about her. Everybody. They came back. We, we, we met this person in India. You'll never believe this Tamina Chama we met there. She was the talk of the world. Everybody was talking about her. When she was still a child. I don't have enough time or enough ink in my quill to be able to share them. And how they would enjoy discussing words of Torah with her. And more than they loved studying Torah with her, everybody was impressed with her personality, with her humility, with her righteousness. She was a personality. When you met Rabbanit Flores Sassoon, you felt something. It wasn't a regular person who you were in her audience. When she reached the chapter of marriage, it's a play on words in the Talmud, when she reached the age when she wanted to get married, she was 19 years old. And Hashem dropped down for her, something, someone worthy of her. There were uh, grape vines, in, uh, mixed with grape vines, it's an expression find, found in the literature of our rabbis that says two people who really belong to each other. And she married a very famous, very wealthy man known as Rabbi Saliman ben David Sassoon. The Sassoon family is known as the Rothschilds of the Middle East. That was the nickname that they were given. They were very, very wealthy Jews. And their funding of Torah institutions, not just of Torah, by the way. Rabbi Flores Sassoon was very involved in scientific research. She funded uh, much of the cure for cholera, for other things that, that were pressing the world at the time. She was the person who got behind many of those initiatives. But she was married to Saliman, Rabbi Saliman Sassoon, in 1876. He was also born in Bombay. He was born in 1841, which if I do my math correctly, I hope my father won't be embarrassed with me, uh, 15 years older than her. And he passed away in the year 1894. His memory should be for a blessing. At that point in time, Rabbi Saliman Sassoon, who had taken over the Sassoon family business, had now passed it off to his wife. And his wife, Rabbi Flores Sassoon, was now in charge of the entire Sassoon organization around the world. And essentially becomes one of the wealthiest Jewish women in her time, if not the wealthiest. And like I told you, it would be very wise for whoever wants to look into the righteousness of Rabbanit Flores Sassoon and to see the way in which he was understood and treated by Talmud Chamim to do a parallel study of none other than the personality of uh, Dona Gracia uh, after the Spanish Inquisition and to see who she was and what the attitudes around her were. These are two figures who are not directly connected to each other, but whose memories, they bring up similar thought patterns and similar ideas in, in what they did for the Jewish community. By the way, the, the story of Dona Gracia. Anyone know who I'm talking about? Dona Gracia? Yeah, good. Yeah. Oh. 
finally, Baruch Hashem. I have a book about Jewish women who changed the world. Um, and uh, she's actually mentioned that from um, th there's, there's just across the, the world different. Uh, funny enough, uh, Flora Sassoon is not mentioned there, which is quite strange, but there's everybody from Doña Gracia all the way to Golda Meir. So, yeah. Right. Finally, I know someone. It's, it's interesting the Rebbe is not in there, but I'm not surprised. Like you said, I'm not surprised. Uh, Donna Gracia, I was once asked by somebody in a shiur, what my attitude is to the founder of, of uh, the visionary behind the modern state of Israel. And they were obviously assuming to, uh, they were referring to Theodore Herzl. And I told them that I would answer the question, but I don't believe that Theodore Herzl was the visionary behind the state of Israel. I think that the entire founding of the state of Israel and the Zionist movement as a whole was founded by none other than Dona Gracia, and that I don't think there's any one person who's done more for the modern establishment of Jewish people in the state of Israel than Dona Gracia. And anybody who doesn't understand how I could say such a thing doesn't truly comprehend what Dona Gracia did for the Jewish community. And really, I don't want to go on a tangent about her, but let's say that Dona Gracia, just on a financial level, there were yeshivot well into the 1900s in Israel that were still using the money that she had left them after the Spanish Inquisition. Not about a person who dedicated her life to making sure the Torah did not disappear from the Jewish people, but not just on a Torah level. She politically, politically, Dona Gracia founded the first independent state of Israel after the Spanish Inquisition in the land of Israel. She appointed the first prime minister of that Jewish country, was none other than a Rabbi Abu Lafia, who made his capital in the city of Tiveria. And if this history that I'm talking about is not familiar to you, it means that we need to, at the end of this series, have a series of shiurim about modern Zionism and Dona Gracia's contribution to the Jewish community. Uh, because when you, when you read about her and you learn about her and you wonder why does nobody mention the names, it's not just, it's not just another person. She is one of, one of the greatest personalities that Judaism has produced since we left uh, the land of Israel the first time after our expulsion. In the year 1902, she came to visit England. She would come back and forth to this country many times. In 1911, that's already a few years after her husband's passing, and she decided to move for good. She left India and she moved for good to London uh, with her daughters and her one son, who the beloved, brilliant, wise one, Rabbi David Sassoon. Hashem should lengthen the days of his life. Later in this book, there's actually a smicha certificate given from Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin to Rabbi David Sassoon, the young, the young Sassoon, in which he ordains him, but ordains him through a poem. It's a, it's a poetic smicha certificate. It's a beautiful piece. And there was a very close relationship between the rabbis of the generation and Flora Sassoon's son, Rabbi David Sassoon, which we could discuss at a different time. And about him I say the verse, the verse that the Torah says about David HaMelech, that David was, uh, Hashem was with him, and everyone who knew him was amazed by his brilliance. The same thing I say about David Sassoon. Uh, and I think that, that uh, he says that Rabbi David Sassoon's books speak for themselves, and praiseworthy are those who gave birth to him, and praiseworthy are those who raised him. In the year 1924, in the month of Nisan, 
the head of the Jews college invited her to speak and address uh, the Bet Milash for Rabbanim in the Jews college. Speech day. She was to be the chief guest of honor in speech day at Jews college. And Rabbi Sassoon shared a wonderful dirasha that she taught all of these rabbis there. Her words were not just a speech, but they were seasoned with Torah and all kinds of other wisdom. Jewish Forum New York. He said, and they published her book in Oxford. I haven't been able to get my hands on a copy of that speech, the original. I do have a copy of the speech I'm happy to share with you. It's an abridged copy of the speech written down by a certain Rabbi Herzog. I have it right here. Who was a rabbi in London. Uh, and he records in the end of his book on Vaikram, he has the Dirasha Me'et Marat Flora Sassoon. He has the Dirasha from uh, Rabbanit Sassoon in his book. It's, so in his book of Dirashot, he also records the abridged uh, version of the Dirasha that she gave here at Jews College. And I'll read to you soon a little bit of that Dirasha. She, she takes the stage and she makes sure that everybody knows that it's been, it's, 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 an injustice that has been done that she's the first lady to ever be invited to speak to a group of rabbis and that's not the way that it should be and that she understands why they don't want to invite women to speak because of their general disdain towards women in the Torah community and she, she doesn't uh, hold back any words, she doesn't mince any words. Listen, she's famous enough, she's a scholar enough and she's wealthy enough that she didn't really care what anybody would say about her and that, that speech that she gave is, it should, it should be framed in history as a speech of rebuke and also advice to Jews College on how to proceed further. She laid the cornerstone of the London Jewish Hospital in 1915. In 1925, she laid the cornerstone of the Sephardic synagogue in Manchester called Withington Congregation. Mord, is that still around? Uh, it is, yeah. Is it still Sephardic? <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, the rabbi is Sephardi. I think they keep that going, you know. But there was basically two synagogues in that part of town, and I think due to numbers, they, they merged together. So, but it's, it's it's it is definitely, you know. I think Benji as well. Benji knows it very well as well. Um, um, I think yeah, it's it's pretty pretty much predominant. It is Sephardi, yeah, for sure. Okay, so the my grandparents' synagogue. Really. Is that an area of town where the Jews have kind of moved away from? Is that what happened there? Yeah, yeah. Okay. We have that in the United States too. Places where once were the bustling Jewish community and today there are a few people left behind to kind of take care of whatever is there. Very interesting. Um, okay, so that's what it was. Were you in my shirt last week, Benji? Yeah. Okay, so we mentioned him last week, and I, this, that's where he was the rabbi. I understand now. Yeah, over, 40, over, over 40 years. Wow. Well, is he? Did, I didn't. I asked last week, but I didn't get an answer. Is he still with us, or he's not in the living anymore? No, no. No. Okay. He was very unpopular with the religious people. So very unpopular. Yeah. Okay. I guess we'll do that when the camera is off. <laughs> we'll, we'll get there one step at a time. And then he he. <laughs> He leaves off, so basically Manchester summarized. That's probably why, that's probably why he's not well known, because the more religious community wasn't so fond of him. Wasn't so fond of him. Okay, okay, well, 
Uh, Benji, I'm going to be reaching out to you after the shiur. For, I want the scoop. So, <laughs> when it comes to when it comes to uh, the bedin in Manchester, so we had a Sephardic bedin. Now we don't. And it comes to the Beit Knesset, so we had, but it went through a merger. So I see Manchester's on the up and coming list of more. You're making a revolution, Bezalat Hashem. I hope. Try and try. Uh, Isaac, you asked if it's going to be recorded. The shiurim are all recorded and put on a playlist on YouTube. So. Don't say anything you don't want the whole world to hear. No, no, I'm recording. The Zoom recordings. We have a, a whole camera set up in here that's recording. We bless her. She should live for a very long life. A happy, healthy life. And he blesses her with a long life. We know, though, that Rabbanit Sassoon passed away. In the year 1936, at the age of 76 in London. So she passed away in January. So her askana is coming up very soon. Uh, the Hebrew date of her passing, I will tell you. I don't have a Hebrew date. I only have the 14th of January. But uh, we should do something for her askana. Nonetheless, that was a general overview of the life of Rabbanit Flores Sassoon. With your permission, I wanted to zoom in on a few details of her life and share some things that are lesser known to the general public and things you wouldn't be able to find on Wikipedia or somewhere else. There is an extensive amount of literature between and I sent you all of that I have. So everything that I have and that I was allowed to share, I shared with you in a PDF file. Uh, that was supplied to me by the Yad Harav Nisim organization. So the organization of Rabbi Tzachak Nisim, the Sephardic Chief Rabbi of Israel, uh, the past Sephardic Chief Rabbi of Israel, um, he, uh, the, the organization prints many books and many articles and things like that, and they have shared all of the correspondence between Rabbanit Flores Sassoon and Rabbi Tzachak Nisim. Before he was the Chief Rabbi, when he was just a Yeshiva student in Iraq, later on in his life, and when he was a rabbi in Israel, then when he became the chief rabbi, until the end of both of their lives, continuing into conversation uh, between him and uh, Rabbi David Sassoon, so the son of Rabbi Sassoon, and, and that amount of literature is unbelievable. Halakhic questions, uh, questions in, in emunot videot, questions in belief, questions in just simple terms, why we say certain things, why we write certain things, why are certain minhagim in a different way. And you see that from the questions being asked, that Rabbi Sassoon was, had tremendous... Uh, abilities, not just in the Torah, but a tremendous amount of knowledge in which he asked things. They weren't all in one topic, they weren't all similar questions, they were all over the place. And the Bitzhak Nisim truly enjoyed responding to her. And so, I have a letter here at the beginning of that pamphlet. And you should know, only three of these letters are actually published in the writings of Rabbi Tzachak Nisim. So this is the new edition of Rabbi Tzachak Nisim, Shalot I love this book so much that I have two copies. There are certain books that I love, I have more than one copy of. Uh, but I have the original copy, and normally I do that because I find that later editions are censored. They take things out. This edition, I haven't found anything censored yet, but you never know who to trust. So I have both. Um, this book, Yen Hatov, The Good Wine, is a book of Rabbi Tzachak Nisim. He mentions, this is what I could find, he mentions Rabbi Sassoon three times in the book. So he mentions her three times. 
סימן מ"ג. He says, נשאלתי מהגבירה המפורסמה, I've been asked from the very famous lady, הרבנית המצוינת, the incredible רבנית, בחוכמתה, who has brilliant wisdom, מרת פרחה תחיה, אשת הנגיד המנוח, פרחה, the wife of the deceased, רבי סלימן ססון from London, and this is the question that she asked me. It's a question on מסכת ברכות and מסכת ראש שנה, and what it has to do with the ruling of the שולחן ערוך, and the laws of blessing on trees in the month of Nisan, and he writes her back an answer. But this, these letters are, everyone can find them. They're in the books, you can find them printed. This first letter that I was going to read to you is a, the first correspondence that we have between Rabbi Nisim and Rabbi Nisassun. So if you'll, I, I believe I sent it out as a PDF. It'll be on page two of that PDF. He's in Baghdad. And he had just finished printing the book to the Gaum Mishpat of uh, Rabbi Hussein. Rabbi Hussein is a famous Chacham in, in Iraq. And he writes, I'm writing a letter to the crowned Rabbanit Farcha Sassoon in London Habira, in the great city of London. Rabbanit Nikhbada, honorable Rabbanit. Barurli. By the way, you see here the title Rabbanit is being used over and over. I'm not sure that her husband was a rabbi and that's why she was a Rabbanit. It's kind of like you don't marry a doctor and then you become a doctor too. She was a Rabbanit. Meaning her own right, she, there's a Rav and there's a Rabbanit. That's what she is. She's a Torah scholar and she's being referred to with the respect that you would speak to a Torah scholar. Barurli. It's clear to me. It is clear to me that it is completely disrespectful that I'm even writing a letter to the esteemed Rabbanit. And you don't even know me from anything. We know that he heard about Rabbanit Sassoon from a Rabbi Al-Fandari. Rabbi Al-Fandari is a rabbi who finds himself the chief rabbi in Syria. And so he hears about this great Rabbanit from him and then feels the need to write a letter to her. He said, I'm fairly certain that the Rabbanit has never heard anything about me, that you don't know who I am at all. I'm reaching out to you from the blue. But nonetheless, I cannot hold this back, this irresistible urge to deviate from the path of what is proper, just slightly. To just give thanks to you, you precious Rabbanit. And he gives thanks that through a third party, he received funding to print this Torah book in Baghdad, and he wanted to thank her for that. And then he goes on to write other things, and he signs himself off on page 4, Yitzchak Nisim Mula Rachamim in Baghdad, and signs it Mesopotamia. So this is the, the first letter that we find in correspondence between each other. From there on out, the letters start flying back and forth between the Yitzchak Nisim and Rabbanit Flores Asun. Before I read to you these letters, I want you just to know the names of people who she found herself involved with. Rabbanit Sassoon didn't just correspond with a few random Sephardic rabbis or people that she may have come across in her life, but it would be incorrect if I didn't mention to you some of her, her chachamim that she corresponded with. So, uh, Rabbi Shlomo Eliezer Al-Fandari, I mentioned to you, from Syria. Rabbi Elchanan Wasserman, the famous Rabbi Elchanan Wasserman. Uh, Rabbi Elchanan Wasserman, They, they tell how when he came to visit her, so impressed with his wisdom, of, he came to visit her parents' home, presumably to collect money, and could not believe that he had met a Talmidah Chama of her caliber. Rabbi Dr. Benjamin Moshe Levine, uh, 
some other Chachamim that she corresponded with, Rabbi Yitzchak Nisim, the head of the Mekubalim Yeshiva, Rechovot uh, Anahar, I believe that Daniel Isaac may be familiar with him, in Yerushalayim, Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin in England, Rabbi Shimon Shkap, the Rosh Yeshiva of Grodna, uh, so the famous uh, Lithuanian Rabbi Shimon Shkap, uh, Rabbi Yitzchak Isaac Halevi Herzog, Rav Rashid Israel, previously the Chief Rabbi of Ireland, Rabbi Yitzchak Isaac Sher, Rosh Yeshiva Slabodka, Rabbi Yitzchak Eliezer Dessler, so that's the famous Rabbi Dessler who wrote Mikhtav Meliyahu, um, Rav Svi Pesach Frank, Rav Eliyahu Lopian. Uh, these are names, like these are the, the big guns of world Jewry at the time. And she has correspondence in Halakha, in Torah, in Musal, with all of these rabbis. She is all over the place in conversation of Torah with these Chachamim. There's more, by the way. Uh, Rabbi Cheskel Abramsky, the famous uh, author of Chazoni Cheskel and the Tosefta. Rav Shmuel Yitzhak Hillman, the Av Bedin of London. Uh, he wrote a series of books called O Hayasha. Uh, Rav Daniel Movshevitz, he is Rosh Yivat of Kelm. Uh, Rav Shlomo, the head of Calcutta, Rabbi Tzach Chai Bokovza, the Av Bedin of Tripoli, Rabbi Eliezer Mansur from Tveria, uh, Rabbi Akiva Akhen Rappaport, who was the head of the Haredi community in Danzig, Rav Moshe Wertheimer, uh, Rav Zimir Lazarus, and, and many, 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 many other Chachamim. And you should see, I have copies of all of their letters and the things they write to her. They cannot believe that they're, it's like, it's like they met a unicorn. If I had to tell you the, the way they're writing, like, they can't believe who they're speaking with. The words they write to her. Rabbi Benjamin Nashel Levin, he writes about her, May the name of this tr- tremendous woman be blessed. And she, her reputation should be a, a, a role model. She should be something that every Jewish woman strives to be like Rabbi Sassoon. Uh, we have all, I can't even, the letters here are, are too numerous. I wanted to focus on Rabbi Yitzchak Nisim. Rabbi Tzak Nisim takes issue with Rabbanit Sassoon at a certain point in his correspondence with her. He wants to start publishing the letters that he's writing to her alongside the other letters of Torah that he's writing. You know, rabbis, they write letters, people ask them questions, they write answers, and there are many volumes, we call them shut or shelot v'chuvot, many books of questions and answers, response to literature, that he wants to include the correspondences between him and her inside of his book. And she seems to not really appreciate the fact that he wants to include her name. For whatever reason, she wasn't interested that her name should be included. Uh, and this leads to a little bit of a back and forth between Rabbi Tzach Nisim and her. Let me read you that letter. Rabbi Tzak Nisim writes, I've thought about this a lot, says Rabbi Nisim. Said, and I'm not sure why you, the Rabbanit, will not allow me to publish your name in my book, Yen HaTov, which will be printed soon. He's speaking to her in a third person, which in written Hebrew is a sign of tremendous respect. That's the way you would speak to a, a Big Tamichacham or a Rosh Hashiva or someone like that. So I cannot, I said, I'm thinking over and over, what is your reason for holding back? So when I first printed that letter that I wrote to you in the Sha'ari Tzion journal, a number of Baghdadi rabbis reached out to me. They wrote to me the following words. 
על מה שמח לפלפל בתורה שבעל פה? עם חכמה בנשים. What did you rely on to study Torah, to, to converse in Torah, even with a very wise Jewish woman? נגד דברי חז"ל במסכת סוטה. Explicitly violating the words of our rabbis in מסכת סוטה. If you're familiar with the sugiyah מסכת סוטה, this is really at the root of can women study Torah or not, the debate around there. There's a Tosafot over there who quotes another piece of Talmud of a, a rabbi who was asked a question by a matronita, and she asks him a question, and he says, I won't answer you, it's better that I should burn the Torah than to teach a Torah to, to, to a woman. These are, these are things that are at the root of this conversation. These rabbis from Baghdad are telling her, how, uh, tell Rabbi Tzadisim, how dare you correspond in Torah with this lady, and even more, you want to publish it? And he's being attacked by the rabbis on his home front. And now he mentions a historical fact that we know to be true, we know that Rabbi Sassoon and the Benishchai never met each other. The Sassoon family visited Baghdad in 1910. The Benishchai, though, had already passed away earlier than that. And because of that, it, they, they didn't meet, but there definitely was a, a certain amount of correspondence there. In fact, uh, Rabbi I don't know what I'm going to do. Maybe I have to do another shiur on, on Farqa Sassoon. Um, there's a story in the Benishchai. You're going to have to do another six, God willing. <laughs> there's a story in the writings of the Benishchai. It's a story that's about a father who does not want to educate his daughter in Torah. And he's, he really has an aversion to this. He doesn't want her to do it. And she's not getting married. She's getting old. And, and she ends up learning Torah anyways. And she proves to her father that she knows Torah better than him. And the, she's like the Benish Chai's hero in the story. Wow, this, look at this. The young girl who proved her father wrong. And she became a Torah scholar. And Rehobadi Yosef also copies over that story, though with minor discrepancies. There's a Tamil Chacham, again, I can't tell you who and which article, but he compared both the story in the writings of the Ben Ishchai and the writings in Rabbi Badi Yosef and showed why there were discrepancies, or at least what was trying to be covered up in the story. Uh, but to the Ben Ishchai, it's very obvious to those who read the story that if you're familiar with Rabbi Sassun, most likely the Ben Ishchai is talking about her. And this whole story is written as a parable, but it's meant to show you his his stamp of approval on her and, and who she was and what she did. But let's be honest. He says the following. They also told us from Baghdad the following thing. We're relying on our rabbi, the good smell. Who's the rabbi, the good smell? That's the Ben Baghdad. We're relying on him. That she used to correspond. She would write questions to the Ben She would always answer her back very curtly, very briefly. He never wrote flowery letters to her like you're doing. He just answered her questions and kept moving. He never printed any of her letters with her name inside of it. Meaning, Rabbi Tzai is getting attacked. Even if you wanted to correspond with her like the Ben but why are you writing so much to her? Why are you, why are you printing her name in your books? He says, so whereas I don't understand it, I'm now being attacked by my colleagues or even by my teachers. How dare I do such a thing? Listen to what he writes to her. And I, the, the poor, the humble one, I wrote a very long letter about this, responding back to the rabbis of Baghdad. I wrote to them based on the Talmud, on the early rabbis, on the later rabbis. 
that those women of the Jewish people who their heart has been set on the study of Torah, the oral Torah, that it's not an option, but it's an obligation on the rabbis of their generation to support them and to encourage them in any way they possibly can. And perhaps, maybe we will merit that the Kadosh Bokhu will place in the heart of more women that they will also want to study Torah. And that they will be able to influence their surroundings with Torah, especially the people in their homes. Because our due to our terrible sins is look at the Jewish community today. We're lacking in Torah scholarship. He says the Jewish community is falling apart. It cannot hurt us to have Talmidot Chachamot in the Jewish community. More Torah means more people learning Torah, means more people engaged in Torah. He said, if you look, there's another book that also mentions, was printed in Venice, also mentions that you should support female Torah scholars. But he says, He said, Rabbanit, really, I came to tell you. He says, Rabbanit, I'm begging you, I'm imploring. Tell me the reason why you wish for me to omit your name. He said, my heart tells me that it's more proper to mention your name. He said, but of course, if you don't agree, then the best way to honor you is to listen to you. I have to consent to what you want. But I'm asking for you to change your mind. Why? He said, I think that for future generations, it is vital that I mention your name in my letters. It's crucial for the, the education of future generations that we don't keep this anonymous. That people know that there was a Rabbanit Sassoon. That people know that she learned Torah. That people should know that she corresponded with Tamlech Ramim. He said, if not for you, if you want to be humble, that's fine. But you can't be humble on account of future generations. And ultimately she must have given in to him because in his book he prints her name. But this whole shiur today is meant to focus not just on Rabbanit Sassoon, but what it means for generations. For generations to see a Talmidah Chachama, Torah scholarship, a woman who reached the ranks of other writing with not just rabbis, not the local synagogue rabbi, with the Benish Chai, with the chief rabbi of Israel, with Avot Batei Hadin, sitting across the table with Rashi Shiva and being able to hold her own in learning Torah, in, in Talmud, in, in Poskim. Why should this not be the norm? If not the norm, why should we not strive for this? So maybe not everybody will make it. Do you know how many of the men who sit in Yeshiva wouldn't know the first thing about a piece of Talmud if you, looked them, if you put it up in front of their face? They sit there all day making cups of coffee. But they're Yeshiva students. Okay, but for every thousand of them, maybe it comes out of Tamil Chacham. So why not the same thing? Why not give Jewish women the opportunity to become Talmidot Chachamim? To come out to be Torah scholars. And you may think, and I know what you're thinking, well, there are Jewish communities where that's normal. Well, that happens already. And I'll tell you the truth, it's not that way. It's not that way. Um, this is my agenda, not your agenda. It's not the case. To study Torah classes, to go to high school and be offered Judaic subjects, to go to seminary for a year and be able to study Torah, it's not the same thing as being taught to be a Talmidah Chama. It's not the same thing. You don't know what it's like, maybe some of you do, but to be given 10 years of your life 
to have no other worries, not taking care of my, my, ki- uh, of, of, of my uh, sister-in-law's kids, not taking care of my parents, not the, just ten, learn Torah, to just learn Torah, to stay up all night, to wake up early in the morning, to go to 17 shiurim in one day, to put out a world of Talmidot Chamot. A year in Israel doesn't cut it. A year in Israel gives you an ability to learn Torah, to begin your journey somewhere. The classes that are offered to ladies. I've never understood why, why, whenever it comes to women's events, so you could bake chalot, and you could tie red strings, and make glass mezuzot, and I don't know, whatever, menorahs and martinis, and whatever else is going to come around now. What about a real shiur in Torah? What about giving our sisters, our daughters, the opportunity to really learn Torah? To know how to rule on a halachic question? To know how to study a piece of Talmud? Not for, for intellectual purposes, so people should just be smart. What do you think it will do to the spirit of Am Yisrael when all of the Jewish people, all of the Jewish people, are familiar with their heritage to the point where they're authorities of their own heritage? We say in the days of Chizkiyahu HaMelech, in the days of our King Chizkiyahu, any boy or girl in the street, you could stop them and ask them a halachic question, and they could answer your halachic question. Our rabbis, in sharing that story with us, don't say only the boys you ask them questions to. Also the girls, the boys and the girls. In the, in the streets, you go to the park, you have a halachic question, go to the park, go to the playground, find a five-year-old, ask them a question. Cheskiyahu HaMelech made sure that everybody in his generation knew Torah. And those of you who are familiar with the, the reform, I'm barring a word, I'm, I'm sure someone is going to clip this out on YouTube and, and uh, add me to another blacklist. The reform that Cheskiyahu HaMelech instituted in the Jewish people, to educate Jewish people, this was his dream. Knowledge is power, and power of, based on Torah is not dangerous. Only weak people are threatened by other people knowing Torah. Why are you so scared that people are going to know Torah too well? You think Rav Dester was worried when he sat across the table with Rabbanin Sassun, and she knew a thing or two about Torah, something he felt well, he was going to lose his job? What do you think was going to happen? He's still Rav Dester. Unfortunately, we're still trying to get the name of Rabbanin Sassun out. You have nothing to worry about. Whatever uh, fears that people have, uh, they're obviously not real. You know? I mean, they're real fears, but they're not founded in reality. They're founded in, in fear. They cripple the Jewish community. And I look, I, listen, I, I taught in Israel for a number of years. It wasn't fair. It wasn't fair the classes you were allowed to teach boys in yeshivot and what you're allowed to teach girls in seminary. It's not fair. And then I come here and... Uh, a egalitarian crusade. But the Torah tells us, Morasha Kilat Yaakov, this Torah belongs to all of us. If it belongs to all of us, then all of us should have access to it. If HaKadosh Baruch Hu felt that all of us having access to the Torah is what is proper, then why do we feel that we have some kind of authority, some kind of jurisdiction to overrule HaKadosh Baruch Hu and get rid of that? When she passed away, Rabbanit Sassun, Rabbi Tzak Nesim writes about her. HaRabbanit HaYichida She'amda Achei HaRabbaniyot Shizki Rabbanu HaChida She is the only rabbinic personality after the Rabbaniyot that the Chida mentions. I think I spoke about this recently, but I don't remember what she or I spoke about this. Anyone familiar with this mention of the Chida here? I feel like I spoke about it in the Sephardi Chabura. The Chida has an encyclopedia. Rabbi Chaim Yosef David Azulai has an encyclopedia of Torah personalities. And under the letter, it's an alphabetic, so A, B, C, D, or Aleph, Bet, Kim, Modalim. 
in the letter Resh, he has an entry of maybe some 36 Rabbaniyot that he saw their writings, that he met or he heard about, that were Torah scholars all over the place, Ashkenazim and Tzavaradim. And how proud he was about that. Rabbi Tzaknesim says that since those Rabbaniyot that the Chida mentioned a few hundred years ago, Rabbanit Sassoon has finally restored this place of another Rabbanit that we can add to the list. When she passes away, Rabbi Yitzchak Herzog writes about her. I hope I can find the quote. No. I told you I brought extra books to yeah, this one. Rabbi Herzog writes about her. She was a living wellspring of Torah. Of awe of heaven. Of wisdom. Of goodness of heart and generosity. From her tremendous well, the Jewish people will forever be able to draw waters of inspiration for the Jewish future. It's not just a personality that was, but it's a personality that offers so much of the future. I wonder, with your permission, just to read a little letter from her. We've spoken so much of what people said about her. But what Rabbi Sassoon wrote, or what she said more correctly, to the rabbis in Jews' college. <laughs> we mentioned the Benish Chai. The Benish Chai writes her a letter. I am jumping back for a second. The Benish Chai writes Rabbi Sassoon a letter. Because he heard that the chief rabbi in London, his name is Rabbi Adler. Now, I don't know much about him, so maybe you do, but I don't. Uh, a certain Rabbi Adler. <laughs> the Benish Chai refers to him as the Chacham Bashi of London. Uh, the Benish Chai assumed that there was a Chacham Bashi in London, but Chacham Bashi and with last name Adler, he wasn't, but uh, a big rabbi in London, he was. He writes, Ragili He used to give a very famous derasha on Shabbat Agadol, the Shabbat before Pesach. And he would publish, before his speech, in the newspaper, he would publish the, the piece of the Talmud that he was going to discuss on Shabbat. He was preparing the community, if you want to come to my derasha and understand anything, look in the newspaper, it will tell you which piece of Talmud to prepare well, so you can attend my sermon on Shabbat HaGadol. Says the Ben and you, the honorable one, you went to his speech. I heard that you went to Rabbi Adler's sermon. And you brought with you a Gemara. So you could follow along when he was speaking. What exactly is he speaking about? So what's the Ben Yishchai's question to her? I wish to know. Are you telling me that the people in London are capable of understanding the people of the Talmud? I mean, it's the Ben Shkad is, is fascinated with this idea that in London there are Jews who are able to study Talmud. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm not here to offend you. I'm just, this is the Ben Shkad. 
And where does he get this information from? He's amazed that the rabbi is giving a derasha, and the rabbi is publishing his derasha in the newspaper, and the people are coming prepared, and the rabbinit Sassoon is bringing a Talmud with her to the shiur, so she can follow along. This for the Ben Ischai, I told you, like a unicorn. You're dealing here with, with a personality that is, is unheard of before. And look at all the chachamim. Nobody's upset. Everybody's so proud. I mean, you're, all of these chachamim are, are in heaven to see that finally this opportunity has been taken. It's been seized. And Rabbanit Sassoon is, is flourishing. And so Rabbanit Sassoon is offered to give this sermon in Jews' college. And I'll just read her opening words to you. So she's speaking here to an audience of rabbis and people who are studying to be rabbis. She says, Rashid Daval. In the beginning, I want to thank the head of the Jews' college. To be the guest of honor, they've chosen me to be the guest of honor in this yearly gathering on speech day. Shamati, and I heard, that from the day that this institute was established, it has never been heard that they've honored a lady to sit here as the head of this Bet Midrash. Perhaps because it says that I never found a woman who is proficient in these things. Or maybe it's less noble than that. Maybe it's because you are those who are accustomed every morning to recite a blessing. Thank you, Hashem, for not creating me to be a woman. Imken, in either way that you've never invited a woman, kasheli, I'm really unsure why you even invited me to speak here in the first place. I mean, you've never done it until now. For whichever reason you've never done it, I'm still not certain why you have invited me to be here. And now, of course, what does she do? She blows them out of the water with thousands of rabbinic quotes and sources. And she mentions here, She's now mentioning a piece of Talmud. It says, over there, It must be because you rabbis here, honorable rabbis, she's being very politically correct, you surely believe that men are the foundation and the cornerstone of humanity. And women are just supplements to humanity, but men are the basis of humanity. And just like this incense, which was the leftovers, was allowed to be offered once every 60 or 70 years, like we read about in the services in the morning. Now it's the 70th anniversary of your Bet Hamidash. And for the last 70 years, you've honored men, because they're the real humans, and you've honored them to come speak here. And so this year is the 70th year and you decided just like in the 70th year you can offer this type of inferior incense offering in the temple. So now you're finally able at your 70th year anniversary to offer this inferior offering of a woman speaking to you here in the Bet Midrash. Rabbanit Sassoon, if she doesn't give you nachat yet, you just have to read the rest of her speech. And he says here, 
אף שאין בליבי עליכם, על הכבוד אשר קיבלתם אותי, ואדרבה, אני שש ושמח. So even though I'm not upset at you, I'm actually very happy that I'm here. כי אחת השבעים שנה קיבלתם גם אישה, that finally after 70 years you've honored a woman. בכל זאת אני להעיד אתכם, I came here though to warn you, כי הוא סימן לא טוב. That inviting a woman in the 70th year is really a bad omen for your school. And now she goes, <laughs> she now goes into a, a, a tangent on the prophetess Devorah, and how what happens when women lead the Jewish people, and how you're making a big mistake by... Essentially, she's standing here in front of all these rabbis and mocking their very uh, foundations of their institution and how this is a men's only club. You finally invited a woman, but really, she, the, whole, the whole speech through, at a certain point, she switches tones and gets over, I guess, her, her initial sense of humor and teaches them Torah, makes some suggestions for practically how they should educate the youth so they could be proper Jewish leaders in the future. Uh, the last teaching, and I wanted to give you a serious teaching of hers. She writes here, וזהו מה ראית, דאיתא נידה, and this is what you find in מסכת נידה, תנא דבי אליהו, it was taught in the house of study of אליהו, you say this every day in the תפילה, כל השונה הלכות בכל יום, anyone who studies הלכות every day, מובטח לו שהוא בן העולם הבא, is guaranteed a portion of the world to come, שנאמר like it says, הליכות עולם לא, אל תקרא הליכות אלא הלכות, I gave a shiur recently in my Gadata class, the verse says halichot, don't read halichot, say halichot. I mean, the verse doesn't say that, so why are we saying that? It's a fascinating question, for a different time. Should I'm warning you, yeshiva students, now. You're sitting here. You're now in the days of your life that you're studying halacha. When you go out into the world, though, after you leave this house of study, your primary occupation will no longer be the study of halachot. Your primary occupation will be halichot olam lo, how to lead the world. How to lead the world to a place which is olam haba. And I think she's giving some musar here. It's a, it's a lesson in musar of, you're in a yeshiva, and in a yeshiva you study all kinds of theoretical things. Like what happens if a cow jumps over your fence on Shabbat, if an ox gores this, if, uh, if, you, if they did it on Shabbat, if you that. Just at the end of the day, you're preparing future leaders of the Jewish people. You're going to learn a lot of halakha. But you have to ensure that the leaders of tomorrow are familiar with the world that they're setting out to go into. They need to know what they're facing. They need to know how to lead this world into a better place. And to a halichot olam no, the obligations of the future will be yours. And you have to make sure that you do everything you can to promise a brighter Jewish future for tomorrow. Like I told you at the beginning of this year, I feel like, a little bit like what our rabbis say about HaKadosh Baruch Hu. It's forbidden to begin praising HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The reason is that once you start, then they'll ask you what, you stopped over there, there's nothing else to say about HaKadosh Baruch Hu, you're done, you're over. You're not allowed to praise HaKadosh Baruch Hu because really you'll never be able to end. I feel a little bit that just by talking about Rabbanit Sassoon for the hour and a half that we've been together, that I've done her more injustice by speaking only partially about her than I could do justice by speaking about her completely. It would be wise if we, especially in this bit of Midash, but even you on your own, delved into the information that we have about who she is, and not because of her. So forgive me for saying this. Not because of her. Rabbanit Sassoon was. Rabbanit Sassoon was. And she was exactly who she needed to be, where she needed to be. But who's going to be the Rabbanit Hasun of tomorrow? Which of our institutions are ensuring 
that Rabbanit Sassoon will exist. That there will be more of her. That the dreams that our Chachamim had about her, that maybe she'll inspire the Jewish people of the future to do the same thing. Where are we creating such people? In which Batei Knesset do they talk about Rabbanit Sassoon? In which Batei Midrash do they teach people about Rabbanit Sassoon? I feel like we've spoken about her just enough to whet your appetite to look into her life more. But more than she deserves that we look into her life and preserve her legacy is really to ensure that what she left us is perpetuated into the future in real Maasim, starting with us, every one of us here, men and women, can become a Rabbanit Sassoon, can become a Talmid Chacham, a Talmidah Chachama, Talmidat Chachamim, that can know enough Torah, that owns enough of our heritage to correspond with great Talmud Chachamim. And I wanted to leave you off with a halakhic question. A halakhic question that I won't give you all the answers to. But it's a halakhic question that Rabbi Yitzhak Nisim really wanted to have enough time in his life to answer, to answer, but he never really got around to it. Rabbi Yitzhak Nisim probably didn't need to get around to it because Rabbi Sassoon died. And he knew that he would never have to be in this situation again. And because of that, it went from being a practical question to being purely a theoretical question. But I wish to spend time one day not just on answering Rubini Sim's question, but to ensure that the question is no longer theoretical, but it's practical. And before I confuse you by my vagueness, let me read to you his letter to Rabbi Sassoon, and this will end for today. Kvod Rabbanit Honorable Rabbanit, who is famous in her wisdom and her righteousness. The one who does tremendous things. Rabbanit, I wish to share with you in this opportunity something. So I cannot tell you how happy I finally was to be able to meet with you and your son, Rabbi David, in person when you visited Eretz Israel. And when you spoke with me in Torah, in Halakha, in Agadah, he said, it became abundantly clear to me how beautiful and clear your mind is in Torah. And I accepted upon myself, but without a neder, without a vow. When I have sufficient time, I will sit down and analyze the writings of our rabbis. If there is a blessing that we recite in a Torah scholar, when we meet a Torah scholar, but not every Torah scholar, not like, when you meet a big, I, I recited this blessing when I met Chamud Yosef. When I saw him, he screamed at us for making this bracha. Who gave from his wisdom to those who fear him. When you see a Tamil Chacham, when you see a Tamil Chacham, who is uh, uh, able to, in their rulings, change 
Jewish law to make uh, to, uh, the whole world listens to their Torah. You recite a blessing. Blessed are you, Hashem, who gave a little bit of your wisdom to this person. This is a tremendous personality. When we said, No, it's a blessing in vain, he said. And I thought to myself, if about Chacham of Yosef, it's a blessing in vain, then there should be nobody else in the world to say this blessing about. Of course, he was, he was just being humble. It was incorrect. Later, one of the people there went to ask of Mazuz in Bnebrak if we did the correct thing in reciting the blessing. Said, of course, you did the correct thing. And he did the correct thing in telling you that you should not have made a blessing on him. But so what? You made the blessing anyways. He says, but I promised myself, that when I have time, I will analyze the poskim and see if I should recite the blessing of Baruch Shechalak Mikochumadol when I see a Rabbanit of your caliber. And he's saying to her, I recite a blessing. I'm, I'm debating. Do I recite this blessing about you like I would about any of the giant chachamim of our generations? And he says, Ki because right now, currently, ani I'm very busy. I don't have the, the, the time or the clarity to be able to spend time on this. And it seems to me on surface value, I think, that certainly we should recite the blessing of Baruch Shechalak on you. Like one who sees the Chachamim of the Jewish people. There should really be no difference between a man and a woman when we recite this blessing. Yubi Tzlak Nesim never answers this question. He says that he thinks you should recite this blessing, but he doesn't know. And I really truly believe that the reason he didn't spend much more time on it was because after Rabbanit Sassun passed, who else was he going to meet in his life? that was going to fill in those shoes of a Rabbanit, a Poseket, a Chama. I have a colleague, I told you, who he wrote a 10-page answer to this question, in which he proves that Rabbi Yitzhak Nisim is correct. And like I said, I'm not allowed to share it yet, but when I can, I will. But it makes me feel that we have to answer this question, because I truly believe that we, Am Yisrael, especially those of us here in this Bar Midash, are going to commit to ourselves, without a that we will be the cause, that we will be the reason, that we will assist anyone who wishes to strive to grow, to, to reach this place, this caliber of Rabbanit Sassun. And we're here for that. We wish to see that happen, that every person who comes out of this Bed Midrash will one day reach the caliber that we can recite about them, the blessing, Baruch Shechanak Mechuchmatot Riyav. How praiseworthy is the Kadosh Baruch Hu, who doesn't keep his wisdom to himself, but shares wisdom with those who truly fear him. And I think that, if anything, we walk away from Rabbanit Sassun, is to say, Rabbanit Sassun is a role model. If you wish to discuss a curriculum that belongs in a school, if you want to see how righteous people should be, if you want to see just how dangerous it is to have female Torah scholars, look at the dangerous Rabbanit Sassun. Look at her and say, this is what Amisal had as a jewel in her crown. And today the jewel has fallen out of the crown. And if we wait for someone else to replace that crown, they'll put a fake jewel, you'll get a CZ in there, you'll get cubic zirconium, you'll get a plastic jewel, you'll get... We don't want any of that. I didn't say pictures, I said jewels. So <laughs> we, are, we, are, we are going to add to the crown of Am Yisrael more and more Talmidei Chachamim and Talmidot Chachamim. And B'zalat Hashem, that's a commitment that we have here. And I pray on behalf of all of us that we should merit to see that place, to see that time where this question should be relevant and where we have the answer. 
And the answer is that in every single one of us, we should be able to bless. Baruch Atah Hashem, Elokeinu Melech HaOlam, Shechalak Mi Chochmato Lereal. Baruch Hashem. Everyone have a beautiful evening. Thank you so much for learning with me tonight.